your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, and we are broadcasting from the heart of downtown Durham, North Carolina. Here in the studio today with Mike the Sound Guy, and this week we also have Samson. For those of you who uh, happen to follow me off of Twitter or Instagram, you know Samson is my beagle. He's about 11 years old. Uh, He's incredibly intelligent, also sometimes a pain in the butt, so I decided to bring him into the studio this week so I can keep an eye on him. So if you happen to hear panting in the background, that is not Bill O'Reilly calling in. That is Samson pestering me to take him outside. Folks, we've got a few things to talk about this week. We're going to briefly discuss our president and more of the stupid things that he says. The main story is going to be comparing how two different sets of police dealt with false information this week. And in the back third of the episode, we're going to talk about our federal sentencing system and how that's going to play out with Michael Slager and the plea deal that he took in the Walter Scott execution. Before we get into the details, though, I want to give you guys an update about the podcast itself. As I mentioned in our teaser episode, this is a work in progress, and we have made some progress this week. First, we are actually on the iTunes store. So those of you that are Apple folks, please go subscribe. Leave me a review if you happen to like what you hear. I'm told by people on Twitter that we are also on Dogcatcher for Android. I'm not going to pretend to know what that is, but it seems to be a popular app. So if you're an Android user, subscribe to us there. We also came up with the official tagline, that piece about your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. That's what we're going to go with. That will be our slogan. I briefly toyed around with the idea of calling it your island of tranquility in a raging ocean of incompetence, but I thought that was a little uh, uh, pretentious, even for me. We also finally have show notes. They do exist. They are on our website, fiscamall.com. That is F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. Under each episode, you'll see a handful of hyperlinks to the stuff that we talk about. In terms of what we're going to be working on in the week ahead, I'm trying to get us added on to Stitcher. Again, it's another one of those things that I don't use, but people on Twitter tell me that it matters a great deal. And also going to work on figuring out how to do kind of a transcription of this podcast for those of you that happen to be uh, hard of hearing or deaf. I'm big on trying to uh, have accessibility. I started tagging my tweets, the tweet images, with alt text because I have some followers who happen to be blind but were able to use screen readers. So I like folks that if you can't hear, I'd still like you to uh, to read the podcast even if you can't quite listen to it. So that's the stuff that we're working on. Can't give you any guarantees on when that's going to be done because for a lot of the stuff, I don't really know what I'm doing and I'm kind of figuring out as I go using uh, copious amounts of Google and YouTube and asking uh, existing podcasters for advice. But that's where things stand. So let's get into uh, some of the news from the past week. You know, last week I talked a bit about our president. It's no secret I don't like him. I think he's an abject uh, failure, incompetent, imbecile, has no business being in the White House. And he has a tendency to do a lot of really dumb things in any given week. I could spend an entire hour of this podcast just talking about him. But I'm not going to do that. There were two particular things that happened this week that I wanted to bring up. One of them more is kind of an FYI because you hear it a lot. And then the other one, just kind of a recent development that highlights how uh, completely 
unfamiliar with the law, he and his staff happened to be. So as far as the uh, the tidbit of information, you know, he tweeted out a couple days ago a complaint about the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Now that is, you've heard the Ninth Circuit before, depending on your political leanings. If you're a Republican or a conservative like I am, you often refer to it as the Ninth Circus. And that particular circuit, a judge in uh, California, I believe it was, put a ban on his sanctuary city executive order, and then that got affirmed by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And, you know, Donald Trump is not one to back down from a judge telling him that he has done something improper. You know, the man, give him credit. The man goes all in when he is wrong. He tweeted out, quote, out of our very big country, with many choices, does everyone notice that both the ban case and now the sanctuary city case is brought in the Ninth Circuit, which has a terrible record of being overturned, close to 80%. They used to call this judge shopping messy system. Now, part of this is, in typical Trump fashion, actually wrong, because even though the ban case was banned in Washington, it was also banned in New York. It was also banned in Virginia. Multiple judges stepped in to ban the ban. Uh, That is his Muslim ban, by the way, the one that was promptly overturned, and then they tried to revise it, and then that got blocked as well. But the piece that I want to talk to y'all about is this notion that the Ninth Circuit has a terrible record of being overturned and that it's really just a surprise that all the cases are coming out of there because it's not really backed up by the data, at least not the way you would think. So let's tackle the first piece. Is it a surprise that these cases come out of the Ninth Circuit? And the reality is no, not really, because the Ninth Circuit covers a lot of states. Ninth Circuit is... All of Alaska, Arizona, California, Hawaii, Idaho, Montana, Nevada, Oregon, Washington, as well as the territories of Guam and the northern Mariana Islands. Now, not only is that a lot of states and territories, but if you think about who has the electoral votes, which is in turn measured by, it's a proxy measure for population, those states, the Ninth Circuit covers 20% of the country. 20% of Americans live in the Ninth Circuit. All right, so we have 13 federal circuits. That's roughly each circuit is about 7% of the total. And yet here you have the population covered by the ninth being almost three times that. So does that mean the ninth circuit is too big? Probably. You know, that part doesn't surprise me at all. But the idea that serious cases would come from there is kind of normal because you have one out of every five possible plaintiffs happens to live in a state covered by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. So as far as that piece goes, he's an idiot. But in terms of the rate of getting overturned on appeal, he's even more of an idiot there because the reality of it is our Supreme Court is a court that only takes cases when it needs to take cases. So if there's something where all of the circuit courts are in agreement on how the law is applied, usually the Supreme Court leaves it alone. You know, we talked in last week's podcast about how the court system is structured and the role that precedent plays, where what the Supreme Court rules is binding upon the lower courts, how the Circuit Courts of Appeals implement that precedent as binding on the district courts, and so on it goes. Well, if all of the circuit courts are doing everything right, there's no reason for the Supreme Court to step in. Where you often see the Supreme Court take a case 
is where you have what is called a circuit split. This is where one circuit happens to rule one way on a given piece of law or constitutional issue, and other circuits rule differently. When there's a split, you're inclined to see the Supreme Court intervene because now it's its job to clean up precedent, to explain that how people are implementing what they have previously ruled. Is that right? Is that wrong? And why? So if you look at any circuit, pick one. Doesn't matter. If you look at any circuit, most of the cases taken from that circuit, the Supreme Court happens to overrule them because it involves circuit splits. So, you know, I can go on at length about Donald Trump and why Donald Trump is wrong, you know, but on this particular piece where you have a lot of not just the president, but a lot of other conservatives complaining about the Ninth Circuit jurisprudence and how they're wrong all the time. That's just not really the case. All of the circuit courts are, are quote-unquote wrong because there's a selective number of cases the Supreme Court takes. You know, you think about it, the federal courts of appeals handle thousands upon thousands of cases every single year, thousands. Yet the Supreme Court is unlikely to take more than, you know, I think the current number is like 60 a year. Don't quote me on that. It might be a little bit higher. But we're talking less than 200. You know, 200 would be an enormous number of cases. So the Supreme Court is basically taking a couple droplets out of a fire hose of appellate litigation. That means most of the time when the Ninth Circuit rules, it happens to be right. You just only see the cases where they get overturned. So that was the first uh, piece of law-related stuff that caught my eye with our uh, papaya POTUS. The other one happened to be a signing statement that he issued back on Friday uh, relating to the budget that passed Congress. Now, those of you that are familiar with politics in America, you know they love to dump stuff on a Friday because Americans have lives. We like to go out and party or go somewhere with the kids or just sit back and relax and watch mindless TV instead of dealing with all the dumb shit our politicians in Washington are doing. So whenever there's bad political news, whether it's federally or at the state or local level, it tends to drop on a Friday. And this signing statement happens to be one of them. Now, signing statements are this piece of gibberish that presidents have done for decades. You know, Trump does them, Obama did them, W did them, and it goes on and on and on. I don't know who did the first signing statement, but it goes for a while. And they're essentially these documents that claim the president can pick and choose what parts of a law to enforce. You know, it says... In any given document, you know, I'm interpreting this to unconstitutionally infringe on my rights of the executive, so I'm just going to treat it as advisory language. You know, they're totally unconstitutional as in terms of effect because if Congress puts something into law and the law itself is legal, the Supreme Court doesn't give a flying fuck what the president says about it. The reality is it's going to be something to impact the president. I don't know why they do it. I mean, it's, it's pure politics. It has no legal effect in my mind. But sometimes it gives you an insight into how ridiculous they, uh, they happen to be. So in this particular signing statement for the budget, the last paragraph, all the way at the end, dropped on a Friday, reads, and I quote, My administration shall treat provisions that allocate benefits on the basis of race, ethnicity, and gender in a manner consistent with the requirements to afford equal protection of the laws under the Due Process Clause of the Constitution's Fifth Amendment. Now, that sounds innocuous. I mean, of course, the president has to 
go ahead and do this based on the, the Constitution. But the sections that he has cited relate to, among other things, the capital financing for historically black colleges and universities. And the only reason you would have that type of language in a signing statement is if your president thinks that funding historically black colleges is unconstitutional. You know, no one says, I agree that I'm going to treat my checking account in a matter consistent with the requirement that there be money in there. You know, it's not something you say when you know that it is what it is. You know, you know you're required to do a certain thing. You don't feel compelled to point it out. This is purely something playing to his white nationalist base, making the case that funding historically black colleges and universities is unconstitutional. And the reason why that pisses me off is because I happen to be an alumnus of a historically black university. I graduated from the North Carolina Central University School of Law in Durham in 2012. It is an HBCU. And if you look at the history of historically black colleges, the key point here is the word historically. They were universities for black students because historically segregation was the fucking law. You were not allowed to enroll in a white institution if you happen to have any melanin in your skin. You know, if you look at the private HBCUs, I'll give you Howard as an example in Washington, D.C. Howard University had white students from day one. When they opened the doors, there was a white girl enrolled. It happened to be the daughter of one of the guys who helped founded the university. All right. The public institutions, the reason why there weren't white students admitted is because white students weren't allowed by law. White legislators insisted on segregation of the races. It's called de jure segregation, segregation by law. So this notion that funding capital improvements for a historically, keyword, historically black college is against the law is mind-blowingly stupid because unless you shut down all of those universities, there are always going to be historically black colleges and universities. They don't always stay that way. I went to Central. White people get admitted there. You look at several other HBCUs that have been created, they have substantial populations of white students. The idea that someone who is not black is somehow blocked from going to a historically black college is wrong. It's dumb. It's stupid. It did not actually happen. You can go to any HBCU in this country and you can find white students there. So I don't know what the president was thinking. I don't know what his underlings were thinking, but this signing statement is ridiculous. And this is a good example of why I am part of hashtag Team Woodchipper. But enough about Trump. Let's go ahead and talk about some of the, uh, the main story for this particular episode, which is how two different sets of police dealt with false information this week. Down in Balch Springs, Texas, 15-year-old Jordan Edwards was executed by the local police department. You're probably not going to be surprised to hear that uh, Jordan was a black male. He was 15 years old, a star at the local high school. He played football. He had good grades. He was widely described as a respect for a young man by pretty much everybody. And although we don't really know the full details of what has happened yet, what we do know is that he was attending a party. That's what kids in high school do. And he and three other teenagers were leaving. When police arrived, Officer Roy Oliver arrived at the scene 
and for reasons we still don't really know, took out a rifle, fired into the passenger window of the car, and shot Jordan Edwards in the head. Now, I want to let you to listen to a clip from the chief of police down in Balch Springs, Texas, about how he initially described what took place. Here we go. While officers were out at the location, they heard gunfire. There was an unknown altercation with the vehicle, backing down the road towards officers in an aggressive manner. An officer shot at the vehicle, striking a front seat passenger. Now, there are two parts to that press conference statement that really should kind of tip you off that something is amiss here. First, you notice he describes the car as backing up in an aggressive manner, which if you think about how the shot took place, it was described as coming in to the passenger window and hitting Jordan in the head. Well, unless the kid's got his head on the fucking dashboard, you can't back up a car and have someone shoot a rifle if the car is coming towards the officer and it hits you in the head and it go through the passenger window. That's just not going to happen by physics. But you should have known that that statement was bullshit because if you listen to what the officer said, he said there was an unknown altercation involving the car. What the fuck? If it's unknown, you don't know about it. You can't really say the car was backing up in an aggressive manner. The police chief basically gave away the game. He said there was an unknown altercation, but please listen to my bullshit anyway. And sure enough, listen to this admission from his next press conference. I unintentionally... Incorrect, yes, intentionally incorrect yesterday when I said the vehicle was backing down the road. In fact, according to the video that I viewed, the vehicle was moving forward as the officers approached. Now you can tell from the stammering there at the beginning of his statement that he knows he fed you a line of bullshit. The fact is he relied on the word of his officer who ended up killing an unarmed person and repeated that, parroted it to everyone else because that's the standard operating procedure when there's an uh, officer involved shooting these days. You know, you'll have the chief of police trot out a statement that doesn't make any goddamn sense when you actually listen to it, but it's going to include some kind of language about how the officer feared for his life. You'll hear something about the criminal record of the accused and so on and so forth. That's how it normally works because everyone knows that the initial narrative is what matters. Just like in politics, you know, a lie can spread around the globe and be home for dinner before the truth ever has a chance to lace up its shoes. That's just how it is. So, you know, I give the officer, the police chief credit for at least being willing to come out and admit that what took place was wrong. Now, I want you to contrast that with a story out of Raleigh, North Carolina. Now, it happens to be just a few feet from uh, where I live, and I practice in Wake County on a pretty regular basis. And I saw a story by reporter Chris Chaffee in the local newspaper, the News and Observer, involving a Smithfield's barbecue. And that's a franchise restaurant here. This particular restaurant is owned by a retired Marine. And there was a story where, according to some Raleigh police officers, they came in to get food, and the entire restaurant, including the manager, serenaded them with Fuck the Police, a uh, song by N.W.A. Now, those of you that happen to know your, uh, your rap music, you know you can't really sing Fuck the Police. So this idea that that happened already is a bit dubious. But those officers sent a message to Raleigh Detective uh, Matt Cooper, I think Matt is his first name, Detective Cooper, who happens to be the president of the Raleigh Police Protective Association, the local chapter of the Teamsters, and a chapter, local chapter of the Teamsters. And here's what Detective Cooper, the president of the RPPA, 
decided to post on Facebook, quote, thank you, Smithfield's Chicken and Barbecue, the Jones Sausage location, for the class and professionalism as you sang F the Police as my brothers at the Raleigh Police Department attempted to eat at your restaurant. The manager sang along as well. Do you really feel that was appropriate? Now, this is something that became such a firestorm on social media, as you can imagine, because people don't bother to think critically before posting their ridiculous bullshit in the comments. It ended up spreading far and wide. And of course, the uh, the guy that owns the restaurant is like, Jesus, you know, this is outrageous. We're being, you know, we've always done our part to try and uh, support the police and now we're being tarred and feathered. So they ended up having an investigation. Like it became such a big deal that the uh, the chief of police in Raleigh herself, uh, Miss Chief Deck Brown, Cassandra Deck Brown, actually issued a statement saying, "Hey, based on the video from the security camera, that never happened. Surprise!" Now, does Detective Cooper do like the chief in Bolt Springs did and admit that he was wrong? Fuck no. He ended up getting on Facebook and posting this. It says, we really appreciate the support we have received from the incident involving Smithfield's chicken and barbecue. We are confident that a positive resolution will occur as a result from our effort. Currently, the conversation between some people on the previous posts have deviated from our original mission, which was to raise awareness to that particular situation and to show what police officers have to face now on a regular basis. For that, we decided to delete the original post. Now, here's the thing. That incident didn't really fucking happen. So I'm not sure what it was that they wanted to draw attention to police dealing with on a daily basis unless he's trying to admit that police deal with fabricated incidents from the public. I don't think that's it. What he was really doing is he was finding a way to delete that original Facebook message because he knows what he posted was libelous bullshit. So the... Chief of police released her statement. The newspaper picked it up, found out nothing happened. Smithfield had a press conference with an attorney explaining that nothing took place. And rather than ever admit that he's wrong, rather than apologize, no, Detective Cooper posted another message on the Facebook page that says, quote, Last Friday, we shared a post on our Facebook page about Smithfield's chicken and barbecue. There was an investigation conducted, and while there were inappropriate comments made by an employee of the restaurant, not all the information in the post was accurate. Sidebar, no fucking shit. Smithfields has taken all the appropriate steps to deal with the manager involved, and our organization appreciates Smithfields' proper investigation and swift action on dealing with the employee. We have spoken with the owner personally and know he is a strong supporter of our police officers. We believe the issue is resolved and encourage our police officers and members to continue to dine at Smithfield's Chicken and Barbecue. Well, the manager didn't actually do anything. So what the hell is he talking about appropriate steps to deal with the manager involved? You know, this is just more bullshit. We had an original lie that got expanded by a detective with Raleigh Police who happens to be doing this private shit on the side with his local union. And then it just keeps getting compounded and compounded and compounded. And folks, I tell you, I was preparing the show notes for this episode. I went to that post and it's now been deleted. So you have three different posts about this entire story where they have defamed a local restaurant and I guarantee it's affected their sales and then tried to make all of the evidence disappear. Now, I want you to ask this. If they're going to lie about something that minor, that they were disrespected while eating lunch, they're going to lie about it insist on the lie about it, and then delete the evidence that they lied about it, 
if they're going to do something about that for something small, do you really think you can trust these particular officers for something large? I sure as fuck don't. So I apologize for the profanity, but these two incidents this week have really just set me off on the outrageousness of dealing with folks that just have no moral compass at all whatsoever, getting paid with our tax money. So enough with that. Let's go ahead and transition to talk about our Law 140 for the week. have probably heard of the case involving Walter Scott in North Charleston, South Carolina, an unarmed black man shot in the back eight times by North Charleston police officer Michael Slager. Now, Officer Slager, of course, maintained his innocence uh, ever since the incident happened. They went through a trial and 11 jurors wanted to convict, but one held out and then we ended up with a mistrial as a result. The jury could not reach a verdict. Turns out this week, Slager has accepted a stellar, stellar plea deal from the federal government. The Jeff Sessions Department of Justice has given this guy a fucking walk, essentially. But I want you to listen to how the media misreports what has taken place. This is an excerpt from CBS News. As part of the plea deal, federal prosecutors agreed to drop two other charges, and state prosecutors agreed not to retry Slager for murder. His first trial ended in a hung jury. Slager will be held without bond. He faces up to life behind bars. His sentencing date has not been scheduled. And it's that last piece right there where a lot of folks in the mainstream media have gotten the story wrong. This notion that Slager faces up to life behind bars. No, no, he doesn't. He's going to be getting about 18 months, give or take. I'll be shocked if he gets more than that. And the reason why goes to our federal sentencing system. So to give you an idea about sentencing, you have to go back to before the 1950s. And it was very common for judges to give criminal defendants very long sentences with the expectation that a parole board at the jail would evaluate that particular inmate every you know, six months, once a year, and eventually let that inmate out when they've decided the inmate has been rehabilitated. Well, back in the 1960s, 1970s, there was this real push for what's called determinate sentencing, this notion that a judge is going to give you a certain number of months, and that's going to be the time you serve. And that, in turn, led to the creation of what is called structured sentencing, which is what most states and the federal government use now. It's essentially a system where each offense, each crime, has a certain punishment associated with it, and then each defendant, each offender, has a level based on their prior record. And then you plot that in a table. You take your offense uh, level, your offense class, your offender level, and that gives you a box in a grid that shows how much time you should serve. Now, in the federal system, that gets taken to a very, uh, let's call it, it gets taken to a federal level, let's put it that way. In terms of obscene complexity, that's your federal criminal system. They use something called the United States Sentencing Commission's Sentencing Guidelines. There's a guidelines manual. I'll link it in the show notes. And it's this voluminous, I think it's like 600, 700 pages of stuff covering how federal sentences work. There's every single federal crime possible in it. The offense, uh, base offense points for each one, different enhancements based on the crime and certain characteristics of it. And that gives you your base level for the offense. 
And then from there, you have adjustments. So there can be adjustments down for doing things like accepting your responsibility for committing the crime. There can be adjustments up if you happen to be targeting a vulnerable victim. Uh, And then from there, that gives you your adjusted point total. And then the court can then do what's called a departure. They can either depart upward. If there's a lot of uncharged criminal conduct, for example, the judge can give you a sentence greater than what the guidelines would normally provide. And they can depart downward in certain instances. You'll often hear federal defendants talk about what's called a 5K, which means that they have substantially assisted the authorities in investigating other people. You know, there's a joke that there are only two types of defendants in the federal system. People who snitch and people who wished they snitched because the 5K departures are a huge benefit for a lot of them. You know, I'll give you an example. I represented a young lady who was charged in a bank fraud case. And based on the offense, she was looking at a maximum of five years in prison. And we ended up providing assistance to authorities. And as a result of that, she ended up being out on probation. You know, she's still a federal felon, still has to deal with the collateral consequences of that. But she didn't have to do any actual jail time. So if you look at the guidelines, and again, I'm going to link the guidelines in the show notes, and I'm going to link you to a Twitter thread where we walk through this setup. Slager is essentially getting away with murder because as part of that plea deal, you heard in the snippet from CBS News that they're dismissing the other charges. So he's pleading guilty to violation of Walter Scott's civil rights. But they're dismissing the obstruction of justice charge. They're dismissing the murder charge. The state of South Carolina is giving up on the re-prosecution for murder. So this guy was previously facing the death penalty. Now he's not going to get that. And if you look at the way the plea agreement is written up, it's something where you look at the guidelines. He's going to get 10 points as the base offense for violating someone's civil rights. There's then going to be a plus six point enhancement because he did that as a government official, as a police officer. So based on that, he's looking at about two years. But then in the plea agreement itself, the government has agreed that they're going to give him a three point reduction for admitting responsibility. So that puts his net total at 13 points. He's a first offender, which means is a maximum punishment normally it's going to be 18 months in prison. you got to serve a certain portion of that sentence, and then you get out early. Uh, you get sent, put on um, post-release supervision. So the big media talk has been on a section of the plea agreement where the state agrees that they're going to ask the judge to depart upward and give the guy 20 years for murder. But here's the thing. There's no actual basis in the guidelines to do that. If you look at the history of structured sentencing, you know, these things used to be followed slavishly. It was all about the math. Whatever minimum or maximum sentence was in the structured sentencing guidelines is what the judge had to provide. It's what you had, you had to be punished. And there were a series of cases that ended up undermining that because the Supreme Court decided that that became an infringement on your sixth uh, amendment right to a jury trial. So the first case in the group was Apprendi versus New Jersey, dealing with a hate crime enhancement statute in New Jersey. The majority in that case, it, it kind of gave you an idea of how scrambled your typical 5-4 majority is compared to how these three cases that I'm going to talk about have turned out. The justices in the majority were Scalia and Thomas, both widely seen as conservatives, and then Justice Stevens, Justice Souter, and Justice Ginsburg, who were seen as part of the far left. So it was your judges in the middle 
my, you know, as far as ideology goes, that ended up being in the dissent in this case. But in Apprendi versus New Jersey, this hate crime enhancement was found unconstitutional because it empowered the judge to find the facts necessary to trigger the enhancement. And what the court ruled was that it's up to the jury to find the facts. It's not a judge. The judge is not the fact finder. The judge rules on the law. It's your 12 fellow citizens sitting in a jury box that determine what the facts are in a case. So then fast forward to 2004, this case of Blakely versus Washington involving a structured sentencing system in Washington state, the Supreme Court reached the same conclusion, this 5-4 majority, and the writing was on the wall with that particular decision. So Scalia had the majority opinion. He's the one that wrote the opinion for it, and he says, other than the fact of a prior conviction, any fact that increases the penalty for a crime beyond the prescribed statutory maximum must be submitted to a jury and proved beyond a reasonable doubt. All right, That became the writing on the wall for a follow-up case called U.S. v. Broker involving the United States sentencing guidelines, those federal guidelines. And what the court said, exact same majority reaching the exact same conclusion. If there is a fact, a particular piece of information that the court is going to rely on to give someone a sentence, it's got to be proved to a jury. And if you look in the factual basis for Schlager's plea agreement, the facts for murder are not there because there's no mention at all about malice, about ill will, about this intent to kill the guy. All right, there's an intent saying that he intentionally did something that the law forbids with respect to the civil rights violation, but there's no indication that he did that out of ill will, out of malice. Because of that, the court can't depart upward. They can't give him 20 years because that fact has to be proven to a jury or admitted by the defendant. If neither of those things exist, the judge has no legal basis to depart upward. The only reason that snippet about the U.S. attorney is going to ask for it was put into the plea agreement. The only reason that's there is because the U.S. attorney wanted to cover his ass. All right. They want to make sure that when Slager only gets 18 months and everyone is justifiably outraged because that's exactly what's going to happen, they can say, oh, you know, we asked for it. And that, you know, that judge, that judge is the reason why we didn't get it. And judges are appointed for life. And, you know, what are you going to do? Well, what you're going to do if you were smart would be to force this motherfucker to either go to trial or take a plea that's actually going to result in something serious as opposed to only giving him a year and a half for killing an unarmed black man for sport. All right. So that kind of gives you a quick overview into our federal system. When you have time and you're bored, you can't sleep, and you want something that's going to give you insomnia, read through the federal sentencing guidelines and the Twitter thread we have on calculating the amount of time that you're going to spend in jail. It's actually very fascinating stuff when you get deep into it. Folks, that's going to go ahead and finish us up for this particular podcast. I'm already running a bit long compared to the uh, 30 minutes I've been trying to aim for. We're at 35 minutes and counting. If you want to join the conversation, follow us on Twitter. The Twitter account is at Fiskemall, F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. You can also follow me on Twitter at Greg underscore Doucette, G-R-E-G underscore D-O-U-C-E-T-T-E. 
Please subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave a review if you like what you're hearing. Subscribe to us on Dogcatcher if you're one of those unfortunate souls using an Android. And on behalf of uh, myself, Mike the Sound Guy, and Samson this week, who didn't bug me once, I'm actually very surprised. I hope all of you have a fantastic week ahead, and thank you for listening. Thank you.